This is episode number 10 with Gigi Birmingham. Coming up. And she said, This isn't a refrigerator, it's a box. And I was just furious. So I started to rethink whether I wanted to do this for the rest of my life and decided, oh, That's it, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to become an international lawyer. And sometimes you're on stage and you're with somebody and you're thinking, I can't believe you're choosing not to connect. I'm right here. Please connect with me. I'm such a freaking emotional person. It's, this is the curse and the blessing is to be this sensitive, you know. I still feel like a misfit. I know what it is. I know what it is to feel outside. Play the role. You have a moment where you get to do this. Hey there, thank you so much for checking out this podcast. Are you a subscriber yet? If not, click that subscribe button so that you do not miss anything ahead. And if you have an extra moment, go ahead and rate and review the show in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. That will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all your comments and thank you so much for doing that. Hello and welcome to the Working Actor's Journey. My name is Nathan Agin, and this podcast is in depth interviews with working actors, people who have been doing this and getting paid for it professionally for 30, 40, 50 plus years. It is about finding out what took them from A to B. How did they get started? How do they actually work on material? What challenged them? What did they face early on in their career? What do they still get challenged by? And what have they learned from a lifetime of acting? That's what the goal and the purpose of this show is. And so I'm glad you are here. Now, a quick word about me, your host. Again, my name is Nathan Agan. I'm an actor. I studied theater at the University of Southern California, done a lot of theater, a little bit of TV and film. I'm also an entrepreneur, work for myself online. I'm a bit of a goofball, which maybe you'll hear on this show. And I'm also a bit of a Shakespeare nerd, love studying it, reading it, performing it whenever I get the opportunity. Just so you know, there's going to be about 10 episodes for the first season of this podcast. As a listener of the Working Actors Journey podcast, Audible is offering you a free audiobook download with a free 30 day trial to check them out. You can get a book that's an hour long or 15 hours long. Doesn't matter. Whatever you pick, it's free. To download your free audiobook today, go to workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. I do have a recommendation with a fantastic narrator. If you want to hear an actor who is exceptional at this stuff, check this book out. Patient Zero by Jonathan Mayberry, read by Ray Porter. Ray is one of the greats, and he's been named Audible's Narrator of the Year. Now, don't get thrown by the cover. It's not a typical zombie book, which is not my kind of genre. It was the reviews that sold me. I mean, people really enjoyed the story, but thought that Ray was the true hero of this one. I mean, they loved him so much. Some people wished they could give him more than five stars. And when I started listening to this book, I honestly had to remind myself several times that it's just him reading the books and not a dozen different actors. He's that good. And I've been lucky enough to work with Ray on stage and I know what a great talent he is. So here's actually a clip from Patient Zero read by Ray Porter. Chapter 
When you have to kill the same terrorist twice in one week, then there's either something wrong with your skills or something wrong with your world. And there's nothing wrong with my skills. They came for me at the beach, nice and slick, two in front, one big cover man behind in a three-point close while I was reaching for my car door. Nothing flashy, just three big guys in off-the-rack gray, all of them sweating in the Ocean City heat. The point man held up his hands in a no-problem gesture. It was a hot Saturday morning, and I was in swim trunks and a Hawaiian shirt with mermaids on it over a Tom Petty t-shirt, flip-flops and wayfarers. My piece was in a locked toolbox in the trunk with a trigger guard clamped on it. So you can choose this book, which clocks in at 14-plus hours and, for me, flew by, or choose any of the endless options that Audible offers. Could be a book, a newspaper, a magazine, or even a class. It is that easy. To download your free audiobook today, go to workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. Again, that's workingactorsjourney.com slash audible for your free audiobook and 30-day trial. Today on the show is Gigi Birmingham, an actress and singer. And I'm going to tell you right up front, I am always hoping for an honest telling of what it was like, both the ups and downs, and I even joke with guests that tears are optional as we recount their journey. Well, in my chat with Gigi, things did get a little emotional. And to me, it's such a beautiful moment. I believe she's able to articulate so clearly the challenges of being an artist This is one of the most vulnerable, authentic, and special times that has happened in the interviews, and I'm honored that first, such a conversation could take place in this format, and second, that Gigi was open to sharing this. So thank you again, Gigi. Now, before I ever met her, I first saw Gigi in a production of Tartuffe with Circus Theatricals, which is now known as the New American Theater. And this was in Los Angeles, and I was really impressed with her performance and her work. And funny enough, it was only a couple years later that we would end up working together at the Antias Company, where we were in Bertolt Brecht's Mother Courage and Her Children and Noel Coward's Tonight at 8.30. And she was also in that great staged reading of Shaw's Misalliance that I mentioned in the intro to Peter Van Norden's episode. You're probably starting to see how all these episodes come together and it's all interconnected and interrelated. Now, Gigi studied theater at the University of California at Berkeley and trained at HB Studios in New York. She has over 30 credits on IMDb, and recent appearances include Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and a show that I love called Adam Ruins Everything, and two different web series, Kittens in a Cage and The Britishes. Gigi has worked in a number of theaters around Southern California. She has received an L.A. Ovation Award for her portrayal of Maria Callas in Masterclass, and her solo comedy show, Non-Vital Organs, won an L.A. Drama Critics Circle Award and an Ovation Award for solo performance. And if everything else wasn't enough, nearly every December, she and her husband, Matthew Goldsby, perform Cabaret Noel, an evening of holiday songs in both French and English. 
In today's episode, we talk about growing up in rural Northern California with an artistic French mother, living and working in New York, dealing with exhaustion and a food addiction, why she created her solo show, her career in real estate and how that influenced her acting career, how she balances both the emotion and the toughness that acting requires, how she prepared to play Maria Callas, and a whole lot more. So here we go with episode number 10. Please enjoy my chat with Gigi Birmingham. It was funny to read that you grew up in El Dorado Hills because I'm in Placerville right now. Oh, my God. That's wild. I went to high school there for two years to Ponderosa High School. Okay. My girlfriend's family lives here. This is, for the most part, where she grew up. And so we've been coming back, you know, to Placerville for a number of years. And uh, so, yeah, we drive by El Dorado Hills uh, every time we go to the airport. That's wild. I mean, um, I would describe it as halfway between Sacramento and Placerville. Uh-huh. And, you know, I was bused 20 miles to high school to Placerville. Wow. At the time... It was, a, it was a suburb, so it had that very 60s suburb, clean lines kind of feel, but it was in the middle of absolutely nowhere, and it was very rural, um, rural, sociologically speaking, it was very rural. People had horses, and I remember some keeping barefoot at school, and that kind of thing, but I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit. I mean, grammar school in El Dorado Hills was very, like I say, just, you know, perky, and everybody hopeful for the future, and professionals living in these clean lines, mid-century houses, and world looked bright, it was post-war, it was like that. But then when, when I came, went to junior high and high school, and I had to be bused 20 miles to each of those, um, then we were really in the sticks. I'm not saying Placerville's the sticks now, I have no idea. But at the time, it was very much still gold rush country. You could still the Wild West. Of course, yeah. Now there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of a lot of history that they're proud of around here. You know, of that era and that time. Uh, and and yeah, driving Highway 50, you know, uh, th- there's so much development. Uh, you know, even especially in El Dorado Hills, you see the the malls and all the stores and all this kind of stuff. So it's 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 a far cry from uh, you know just people on horses and things like that. Yeah, my brother just told me the other, the other day. I would not recognize it at all. Was it a, a big family growing up? How many brothers and sisters did you have? No, just one brother. Um, very small family. My father and mother had met in France. My dad was in World War II as a GI. And he met my mom, and she was French, and they fell in love and got married at Notre Dame de Paris Cathedral in 1945. He came back to California with his bride. Yeah, about 10 years later, they started a family, my brother and then me. My dad got a job. In Sacramento, as an engineer, that's how we came to El Dorado Hills. But it was a very small family. My dad had one sister in Oakland, and my mother brought her mother over from France, but that was pretty much it for relations here. So we we felt very nuclear, as they said in those days, nuclear family. And so what uh, what kind of things did you guys get into uh, as a family, like when when you were growing up? What kinds of activities do you remember? Well, we had a pool nearby, a community pool. We did a lot of swimming and um, some horseback riding. And my dad did a lot of golf. My mother's being French very much informed our lives. We felt very exotic and perhaps superior. 
And um, my mother, she idolized art. And so she, she really emphasized the importance of art and the, the value of art. And that, I mean, the message that I got really was that unless you were an artist, you weren't really providing anything terribly valuable to the world, which I don't subscribe to now. But that was the message I kind of got from my mom. And there was my dad, the engineer. But my brother and I really connected with my mother. He became a painter. He's a, he's a painter, my brother Lou Birmingham, and uh, and here I am an, an actor. Was your mom an artist in France, or what was her kind of trajectory up to the point she met your dad? Well, she was seventeen and married <laughs> at eighteen. Her trajectory was, uh, I think, getting out of a very bourgeois environment that was stifling to her, and the war had just come and gone, and her father was in a concentration camp for two years, and life was just very uh, fraught. I think over mm. there. For her, and my dad represented possibility and, and uh, freedom. And she, did, she never lived in France again, and she became very relaxed here as a person. So I think it was a saving grace for her. The, the bourgeois atmosphere for her was stifling. Well, I was curious, where, where do you think she kind of got that artistic philosophy? I suppose from her parents who you know, were raised in, they were young people in the roaring 20s, and they were came from wealthy families, and they just did a lot of playing. They were He was a playboy, she was a playgirl. They just, you know, boating and gambling and drinking and drugs and dancing and the roaring 20s. They really took advantage of that. And my mother idolized her father, who hung out with artists, I think. Maybe that's where she got it from. And he didn't really believe in, in earning a buck. He believed in just having money. So I think that's maybe why my mother discounted the the need to be an income provider, you know, that kind of thing. But in those days, too, I think the expectation was you marry and you have children. She was a writer. She wrote. She wrote a novel, and uh, but it was never published. And she wrote poetry. So that was her art form was writing. And so what kind of exposure to the arts did you have as kids? Did you guys go see performances or did you read things at home? You know, what, where did that start to infiltrate your life? It's a really great question because I grew up believing that we had exposure to a lot of art, but my mother talked about it more than we actually did anything. I don't remember ever going to see a play until school, you know, grammar school or high school or something. And I think my first professional play I might have seen when I was 16 or so in Los Gatos at the Cat Theater there. I don't remember ever having gone to a professional production until then. But by that time, acting was was definitely in my blood. Uh, yeah, we did. We did. We 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 would travel to France as a family, and we always went to museums. So the art, the art aspect, we were exposed to visual art for sure. Um, and music. My mother played some French records for us. But it wasn't like we were really inundated with fine uh, artistic sensibilities or ideas. It was just my mom and just the idea that art was great. And it was later on that I realized I didn't really have much of an exposure to it. So what influenced me, what made me become an actor, I think, was more, it wasn't so much that I was exposed to an art and I fell in love with the art. It was more that I needed to, like small children pretend to be other people, I needed to continue doing that. I, I, 
the family life for, for uh, I was a very sensitive child. Many of us actors are sensitive people. I still am very sensitive. And I, I found relief from this rural environment. When I say that, what I mean is there was a gruffness to a lot of the people, not everyone. And I felt somewhat oppressed and I was sort of picked on. So I, I enjoyed pretending to be other people and I uh, didn't realize, I think, that I was acting, but I was doing it a lot. And I'd have friends over in the backyard as a child and I would set things up, like set a stage and say, okay, this box is the refrigerator and this, here's the stove and let's, let's do this, you know, let's do that. Or let's play, let's play Vietnam War Wives and our, and our husband's coming home. You play the husband and I'll play the husband. I mean, so I was always kind of creating scenarios to act out. And I remember being just enraged when I started playing. We, you know, I was getting old. Maybe I was about 10 or something and playing with one friend in the backyard. And I said, "This get something from the refrigerator. And she said, this isn't a refrigerator. It's a box. And I was just furious because she was taking me out of the reality that I was creating in my mind. So the world of the imagination was always my friend. And I can only say that I always had this desire to, to experience other lives inside of my own life and acting for me, was always the, the way to do that. You get to put on somebody else's shoes, somebody else's hat. You are given permission to do things that you would never do in your own life. And I had a very protective mother and father. They were extremely protective and clearly afraid of what the world, the dangers of the world to me. My brother had a different experience. He was a roughhouser and they let him go off and do his thing. But me, they were very, very protective. No boy was ever to cross the threshold of my bedroom door, things like that. And, and you're a kid and you're like, what? Why? So I think I felt somewhat you know, stifled myself. My mother, who had been stifled, <laughs> then stifled me. <laughs> and um, so, and yet I was a good girl. I wanted to please, always wanted to please. So how do you deal with wanting to please and yet, feeling stifled and also feeling a, a wildness inside you. So pretending to be other people who were wild allowed me to get around that barrier. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. And when did that transform into, you know, doing it in a more kind of focused fashion? Were you doing plays in junior high or, or high school? Or when did when did you actually start to think about or, or do theater? Well, we we didn't have plays in um, junior high, although we had a talent contest. I remember writing a song and singing and winning some third place or something. Do you remember what the song was about? Yes, I do. <laughs> the sea is blue, my heart is too. He left me yesteryear. I wish he'd take me in his arms and whisper in my ear. Oh my God, I could sing the whole song for you right now, which is so ironic because as an older actress now, I have, you know, memorization is a, is a becoming an, not becoming an issue, but it's, it's an effort. It's so effortful. And something I memorized a month ago, don't ask me to tell you what it was now, but this that I wrote and memorized. I mean, that was just the first verse, of course. It's a fascinating song about heartbreak. Yeah, it has a, such a 60s kind of feel to it. Um, <laughs> that was great. That was a lot of fun to hear. Good, good. Yeah. So that was, so we had that, but, but it wasn't until high school. They had some plays and I, I got cast in some minor role 
in a play in ninth grade. And then we moved, after my 10th grade year, we moved to the San Jose area, and I then went to Saratoga High School, which was in a very affluent neighborhood, and people really were interested in art. And there was a, it was a total um, transformation for me of my life. I was in a high school where nobody had known me before, didn't know I was a misfit, didn't know I was picked on and ridiculed most of my life by my society. And I was, I made friends immediately. And I wasn't even a terribly clicky high school, as I recall. It was, you know, people were welcoming. And so I auditioned for uh, so the, my junior year, I just went and watched the plays and was sort of fascinated. Wow, this is so cool. These plays are wonderful. And then at the beginning of my senior year, I, I auditioned for I auditioned for my senior year's plays. I auditioned. My first audition, therefore, was with Martha from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf at the age of sixteen, and I got cast in Twelve Angry Jurors, and I, then I got cast as Helen in A Miracle Worker. And that was the beginning, really, of, of, my, of my journey. It was uh, so wonderful. I had a great teacher, Judy Sutton, in high school, drama teacher. And we, there actually was a drama class. And she had a friend, a young, young man, Bill Peck, from ACT. And he would come to our class and talk to us about the method. So I had some exposure to that at a very early formative moment. And I remember working on the role of Helen Keller, in my bedroom, I would close the door, turn off all the lights, plug up my ears, wear a bandana, try and remove all my physical senses except for touch and taste, I guess. And I would go around my room and experience what it was like to to not have the senses to let you know where you were and so on. That just that was the beginning for me. That I, I plunged in and it was just wonderful. felt like home. I want to revisit something you said just in terms of the kind of um, attention you got as a kid that, you know, being picked on and things like that, because a lot of us can feel uh, like outsiders. Like, you know, I had I definitely felt like an outsider growing up uh, in high school. But I'm curious, what is it that you think that you were doing that was actually different from other people? Or what do you think you might have represented Certainly not anything wrong, but just, or do you think it was more just in your head uh, in terms of how people perceived you? It definitely wasn't in my head. I took ballet, and that was a big, dirty secret. No one could know. My mother, uh, God bless her, my mother got a ballet teacher from Placerville, Robert Ronan and Carol Fisher had a ballet studio up there, and she got him to come to Eldorado Hills to the library, where he would come a couple times a week, I think, and and teach uh, ballet. Sometimes we would go up to Placerville also. There were recitals and so on. And I had my two or three girlfriends from school who were also in that ballet class with me. Um, but by the time we reached... The ninth grade, we were just terrified that somebody would find out we were doing this thing that we knew would immediately make us, you know, ostracized. Uh, and sure enough, it did happen. We remembered, I remember the day where somebody was peeking through the window of the, of the rec room at the library, and we could see her face, and we just looked at each other like, oh, my God, it's over. And sure enough, the next day, it was all over school, and we were made fun of. So the point is, what I meant when, when I said the area was, was rural was many people didn't have an appreciation for that sort of thing. And also, so not only that, was I involved in activities that were considered not hip, 
for this rural crowd, but also I carried myself because of ballet. I think I carried myself physically with a sort of proud um, demeanor. You know, I always stood very straight. So maybe they thought I was snobby. Maybe I was snobby because my mom made me feel special because I was half French and she was so beautiful. And, you know, the, the other moms were just kind of ordinary looking. My mother was glamorous looking. She really was beautiful and glamorous. So I think I did feel, I felt a superiority in that sense. And my mother always gave me the feeling that there was another level of elegance that one could live. And we were living at a more base level that she didn't approve of. So maybe I carried that with me too. And my brother was was hard on me and he didn't protect me in school or anything like that. He was the first one to kind of laugh at me. So I didn't have support in that way. You know, you just, a group will find a vulnerable link and they'll just decide to pick on that vulnerable link. I think that's what it was mostly. And and thank you very much for sharing that. So you get cast in these shows your senior year and you have exposure to people from ACT and, and you're starting to, you know, really kind of take this a little bit more seriously, it sounds like, than, you know, just, you know, regular homework in, in school. And what was it that you really started to resonate with and connect with as you were doing this, you know, quote unquote, formally in high school? Well, the idea that I could do this, this could be my profession was uh, not only exciting, it was the only thing I could think that I could possibly do from that moment. I'd been good in school. I got good grades and I enjoyed math and everything. But then when it got a little more complicated, when we got to trigonometry, it became a little too much for me and the sciences were never my thing. Um, I guess I was interested in language and literature, but, but oh my God, the idea that I could act uh, for a living was just that I could do this all the time. Oh my God, it was life-changing. So one of the things... I noticed about you, Gigi, or what I've observed of your work is you seem to have really great comedic timing. And I'm curious, where did that start or, or who were your influences kind of growing up in terms of, you know, who the, you saw, whether it was, you know, TV or, or wherever, that their sense of humor really feel like rubbed off on you? Oh, well, thank you, first of all, for that. Uh, you know, it was probably my dad. My dad and my mom, they liked a good laugh. And my, oh, you know what it was? Gosh, they tended to make fun of other people. I mean, that was kind of um, the family humor was sort of based on, I'm hesitating because it's hard to admit all of this, but it was sort of based on, well, actually, a lot of humor is based on making fun of people. So, or making fun of yourself, same thing. My family certainly never made fun of itself, but it did. Um, my dad was a he was he was a funny guy. He would he would. Um, I'm just picturing him sticking out his stomach, and and I can hear his his big fat guffaw, just this hearty low laugh. <laughs> so we liked to laugh in the family. We would watch. We didn't have TV for a number of years, not because we were poor, but because uh, my brother got addicted to it, and my mother figured that out very quickly. And got rid of it, I think, before I was even walking or anything. So we didn't have TV for the first 10 years or so of my life. But when we did get it, we watched, oh, just things like Bob Newhart or The Honeymooners. You know, we, we always we always liked watching comedies. So 
after you do these plays your senior year and they go well and you're starting to think about this as a profession, what was the decision at that point? Because you ended up at UC Berkeley. So did you know you wanted to pursue acting there? And what was the discussion with your parents about this? And, and how did that all go? How it all went. I remember my senior year of high school, some other friends, some of my close drama friends with whom I'm still friends, if you can believe it, and who are still in the, well, some of them are still in the theater, went on a trip to UCLA. So I tagged along. That was to check out the drama program. What I remember about that weekend is the fun times with my friends. I don't remember anything about investigating anything, you know, for the, for the school. And then at the end of my senior year, I was, I was scheduled to go to France for the summer to spend the summer. This had been planned my whole life. After high school, I get to spend the summer in France with my cousins. But this is what I remember is that my mother said at some point before the summer, you don't get to go to France unless you spend your first year of college at home. And at that point, the idea of the summer in France was so completely ingrained in what, as a reward for all that I had done in my short life, that the idea of not going was, was impossible to accept. And so I accepted. And I, you know, the truth is I was very much under the influence of my parents and not really able to make big decisions I think on my own, they loved me, but they didn't really prepare me for the world. I mean, like I said, they were very protective. I wasn't psychologically ready to be out in the world. I think my mother must have known that. I didn't know it, and I might be wrong about that. You know, sometimes you need to throw throw yourself out there and find out what happens. But uh, all this to say, I went to Europe for the summer, and that was fine, except that I gained some weight and came back not feeling very confident. And then in the fall, I went to junior college for a year and I uh, I auditioned for a play and I got cast in a tiny role. And I was just like, this, this is absurd. This sucks. I, I'm not going to waste myself on if they're not going to appreciate me. So I started to rethink whether I wanted to do this for the rest of my life. And I took a poli-sci class and decided... Uh, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to become an international lawyer. What that is, I don't know, but that's what I'm going to do. I speak French and some Spanish, and that's what I'm going to do. So based on that one class and my disappointment not to be cast in the way I thought I should, and it was a couple of shows. It was several shows I auditioned for, and I didn't get cast the way I thought I should. And there was a professional actress in town, and she got the lead role in this other play. And I remember just being like, it was the first experience with unfairness, I guess. It seemed unfair that a professional actor who was visiting town should get cast in this show here at the junior college. All these factors were such that I decided to, I guess I got scared, and I entered, decided to enter, enter the mainstream. Based on that one poli-sci class, I applied for UC Berkeley, uh, where my father had gone, and so therefore, needless to say, it was the only university to even think about going to <laughs> with my family. So that's why I went there. But that was a terrible, tragic detour, not UC Berkeley, but going into poli-sci. I was only at UC Berkeley for a couple of quarters, and then my junior year was spent abroad in France, in Bordeaux, not exactly the 
funnest place for a young person to discover herself <laughs> and uh, nearby and uh, some cousins and an aunt. All this to say, I did not do well in school. I was miserable. I was clinically depressed and I kept putting on weight and I came back to the United States after my junior year, barely having passed my, my courses. I think I did fail one. So at the beginning of my senior year, I'm back at Berkeley and I have signed up for all these poli-sci courses and I just cannot leave my dorm room. I'm like, oh my God, I cannot go to those classes. I do not want to go. Somebody must have suggested this because I don't think I would have thought of it myself to go to the career counselor. So I went, I walked, I got in, I talked to somebody and she said, okay, you don't want to go to poli, you don't want to do poli-sci courses. Let's look at what your options are here. What would you do if you could do anything on earth? And I said, I would act. And she said, well, we do have a drama department here, which was, it wasn't news to me, but I certainly had never poked around over there. And uh, she opened this huge book. I remember the sound of the book flopping open, come. And she started going through the drama courses. And she said, okay. And she, she took a moment to figure things out. And she raised her head and she said, okay, if you, if you take only dramatic art classes and you go one extra quarter, you can graduate in dramatic art. And it was like somebody had just, like my fairy godmother had just pinged me and life was going to be okay. And so I did take dramatic art classes and I did graduate in dramatic art from UC Berkeley and I made lifelong friends and I got to act in plays and it was really the beginning of my life as an actor. What did you, you know, kind of getting this quote-unquote late start compared to probably some of the other students at, at Berkeley at that time, what do you feel you most took away from, you know, the, when you started taking classes at Berkeley in terms of, I guess, technique or, uh, you know, things that you maybe even still use today? You know, the emphasis was on um, the literature and the playwrights. It was just everyone involved was fully attending to this beautiful thing, dramatic literature and dramatic performance. Everyone was equally as interested and committed and passionate about it as, as I was. It's not to say that they gave that to me. There was no making fun of it. There was no fear of being poked at. We were all in the same beautiful bath. We all had discovered this world and we were all in it together, honoring it and honoring each other. That's what I remember. So when you graduate, then what was your decision-making process? How did you figure out which direct, you know, were you very certain about what kind of actor you wanted to be at that point and where you wanted to work and what kind of theater or, or you know, other kind of mediums you wanted to get involved in? How, how did you proceed at that point? Well, like many institutions, there wasn't any talk about, that I recall, about the business of acting or how one would ever work or earn a living or anything like that. So I went to San Francisco, the nearby big city. I was going to act in theater in San Francisco. I was going to find a way into ACT and, or, you know, or anything. Um, and I was there for a year and I did some plays, some non-equity shows in small theaters but um, I was very depressed. That was perhaps unrelated. I don't know. But I was very depressed. I think probably because I just wasn't, again, prepared for 
adulthood. So I, I was in therapy. My therapist said, is there anywhere you can rest? You're in a state of exhaustion. And so I went to, my grandmother lived in Capitola, little house in Capitola, California, on the beach. And I went to live with her for a while just to rest. might seem silly that a 21-year-old would need to rest, but I did. And um, I went down there and um, I did some plays. They had a local playhouse and I did some waitressing. And then my mother found in a French magazine a, an ad for a singer in Washington, D.C. So I send my tape in. They hire me. I go over there. I can tell you that story. But anyway, I was in Washington, D.C. for three weeks. It didn't work out because I was not given the full, the full story about what I was going to be doing. And so I left and I, went, I stopped in New York on my way back to California and I had one friend in New York, and she said, oh, my God, why don't you just stay here? I'll, I can get you a job at the restaurant where I work. And that's what happened. I stayed in New York, and I was there for eight years. Wow. So, well, there's a couple of things I wanted to ask about. I, I do want to hear the Washington, D.C. story. But also, you know, you kind of mentioned this a little bit there. You're so involved with musical theater and with singing, and, and I'm curious where that started. Was it just, you know, you mentioned that you sent in a tape, so obviously you were, you were doing singing and you consider yourself a singer. But where did, the, where did the singing and the musical part of you come out? Well, I would, I, I, you mischaracterized me a little bit. I don't do a lot of musical theater. I would love to, and I'm back taking singing lessons now because I'd like to become more competitive I do audition occasionally for musical theater, and I do get cast occasionally in musical theater. But my emphasis has always been straight theater. But I did always sing, and my dad's family was very musical, and my dad played guitar and piano, and I learned some piano and guitar. That, that summer in Europe, I carried my guitar with me, and I always did at the time. And I wrote songs. So I was always singing. I did always sing but not in front of people, just, you know, at home. Um, and for family friends that would come over, I'd sing, especially songs in French, too. So that's how that started. So Washington, D.C., there was this ad in a French newspaper for a French singer to accompany an accordionist. So that's the person who hired me. I go to Washington, D.C. I get there. The accordionist has neglected to tell me that he's blind. He really needs a driver <laughs> drive him to the restaurants where he plays accordion from table to table. And once in a while, if I'm lucky, I'll get to sing a song with him at one of the tables. So that's what the job was. And I probably would have stayed happily for a lot longer, but because it was a job, <laughs> but um, he was not an honorable person. I was stay. He was also giving me uh, room and board at his home and they went through my things. I mean, I just, I didn't feel safe there. So I, oh, I got out of there. Yeah, it was awful. Yes, yeah. Probably a good thing you get out of there and headed to New York. Um, you know, it's funny, we, you were talking about singing. Like, I, I think in the context I knew you, it, it was a lot of just kind of more straight theater, but Gigi was the person who always sang. So it's like, you know, you were the one that was always very comfortable and very confident with singing. So that was probably why I uh, connected you with musical theater. But yeah, if they needed a singer or there was someone singing, it was it was most likely going to be Gigi. <laughs> In our in our company, right? With Antius, yeah. And you and I did a musical together, exactly. For Antius, right? So yes, I understand. So so when you end up in New York, you know, are you looking for an agent at this point? Are you trying to become equity? What's the kind of what's the process of that uh, there? <laughs> By the way, this whole revisiting is rather painful because I do look at myself as a person whose life began quite late. I mean, my 
actualization began quite late. I'm happy to say that I do feel like I have a beautiful life now and that I do work professionally and my dreams did come true. You know, I'm not a movie star, but my dreams did come true and I do work and it's so wonderful, but it all took so freaking long. So I got to New York, I was 24. Let me just jump in there. Like, that is probably what most people experience. And it's refreshing to hear that. I mean, like, there are the great stories where somebody at 20, like, hits it big and, you know, their their career is on that trajectory. But uh, I I would say for most people in the arts, uh, not just actors, that it is a long haul and it's a a slog and you just wonder if you're ever going to hit any traction. Well, I don't know. In my experience, that could be that that's the most common story. But in my, ex- my observation, the people who have a career kind of jump started it early. Mm. Like they went to one of the schools where you get to audition for all the agents at the end of the year and you get an agent when you come out of school. And, and then, you know, if you, if you're hardworking and talented, you're going to, you're going to make something, something's going to happen. It might take three, four or five years, but it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. That's that's my observation, and it may be inaccurate, uh, but I just sort of shake my head at the naivete of a person with no connections, no professional experience, 24 years old, landing in New York. How are you ever going to penetrate, you know, the glass ceiling of, of not being part of that? You know, it, it almost, it almost when I look back at, I don't want to discourage anyone who might be listening, God knows, but it just seems so important to have relationships. By relationships, I don't mean it's a nepotistic thing. I mean, have people know you, just people who can lead you to, to employment. That's just so important. And I just knew, when I look back, I just knew no one. I had no connections whatsoever. But I landed in New York and it felt instantly like the right place to be. It felt like home the moment I arrived. I just loved it. I fell in love with New York instantly. And I, you know, got a job and I got a place to live and I took class at HB Studio. took dance class at Steps and Heinz Hatchet Dance Studio. You know, auditioned for things I could audition for. And always, always worked on worked on improving myself, worked on improving my, my abilities. And I loved observing people having lived in the environment I described to you to, to live in a city where people were just themselves. You were shoulder to shoulder with people in the subway. There was no hiding. People were just, there was an authenticity to people that I just loved and a whole spectrum of life that I'd never seen before. It was heavenly. I was in heaven. And the world was my oyster, and the future was bright. That's how I felt when I was in New York the first few years. <laughs> and so, so so, you're taking classes at HB Studios, and then did you begin to hear of auditions through there? Or, you know, what was your you know, path in terms of what you wanted to do with your career? Uh, well, I just wanted to get stage work, you know, employment. Um, backstage, the magazine was what I remember pouring over each week for the auditions and going to equity too, because non-equity actors uh, like today could sign up to, to be seen at the end of a session. And sometimes you got seen, nothing ever happened for me from that. You know, I wasn't very, 
I may have been talented, I don't know, at that time, but I certainly wasn't polished in my presentation. Then um, I struggled with my weight, too, so that was just the other thing that um, I couldn't quite get a handle on. You know, I wasn't fat enough to be really charactery, which is, it's very hard to get jobs when you're very charactery, but at least there are opportunities. But when you're just a little plump, at least this was my experience. I'm not saying this for everybody. But from my experience, it really took me out of, I was sort of a leading lady who was a little too plump or an ingenue who was just a little too plump. So it kind of took me out. But again, it might have been that I wasn't polished as a, in my auditions. I don't know. I know I worked really hard. I know I was trying really hard. That's what I remember. So what was the kind of turning point in New York or, or that allowed you to either, you know, move forward or, or decide to do something different? I just never was going to give up. It was just, you know, I might have had moments. I, you know, and I loved, the, I loved the world I was in and I loved being with other actors and seeing shows. It was an education. It was a huge education for me. Turning point. I don't know. I had some little breaks, but then they wouldn't, you know, I started doing a little bit of TV, but it never really led to anything. I did have agents, but I was hip pocketed by them. You know, I had enough encouragement so that I didn't just drop the whole thing. I had enough encouragement like, okay, okay. So occasionally I'm going to get an audition for television. And I booked a a couple of, you know, a few things for television. And occasionally I would get a, a play. And then I got a role in Twelfth Night at uh, the Public Theater, New York Shakespeare Festival, mm-hmm. in the park, summer. And that was, I'm going to tell you, that was through, you know, from, from my network, my teacher, Zena Jasper, because uh, I'd, I'd long left HB Studios, and for years I studied with Zena Jasper. And she was friends with Rosemary Tischler, who was the casting director at the Public. And so Rosemary saw me for some auditions, and then she cast me as an, a supernumerary in Twelfth Night. So, as I rec- and that was a huge star-studded cast. It was Michelle Pfeiffer, Gregory Hines, Jeff Goldblum, John Amos, Fisher Stevens, Andre Brower, who wasn't known at the time, uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, Charlene Woodard. It was just star-studded, and there were all of them, and then there were a dozen of us extras. I think my title was First Lady, so I had no lines. Um, Rain Wilson was one of the people in one of us. Lisa Gay Hamilton, Mary Mara, John Benjamin Hickey. Oh, my God. Somebody else super famous now. Anyway, so that was sort of I was like, oh, my God, I just got a job at the public theater. Now I will be seen at the public theater and I can work at the public theater. That was a great experience that summer. Really wonderful. And then in the fall, I did audition for a play or two. I think I auditioned for Love's Labor's Lost and didn't get it. And by the next spring, nothing had really happened in my career. And I just felt a bit disillusioned. I did go to India with a fantastic tour through EST with the Crimes of the Heart. So I was in India for six weeks and, again, made some lifelong friends with that experience, and and that was mind-expanding as well. Just wonderful, wonderful experience. I played Chick. And what was was EST? EST Ensemble Studio Theater. Oh, okay. On the Upper West Side. But that was the only really... And that happened that year in 1990. 
Do you remember working on the product, that production of Twelfth Night? Was there anything that you remember in terms of watching these uh, a lot of very talented actors working in terms of what you took away from their technique or their rehearsal process that that you started to adopt as as your own? And, oh, okay, you're laughing now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've always been pretty arrogant about. I don't want to say my skills, my percept, my my ability to perceive, my discerning sense. It's almost like I I was a better actor in my mind for many years than what I was able to actualize. But I, I, people always told me I was a good actor. It's not like I ever got told I wasn't a good actor. So no, what that production with those wonderful film stars, but they they were not in any way prepared to do. Forgive me, and I hope they will forgive me, but they were not prepared to do Shakespeare, and it was pretty poor from that standpoint. It was a super fun experience, but I remember watching them, and in fact, I gave Michelle Pfeiffer some notes (laughs) on how to get laughs, for which she thanked me, so I was able to help her get a laugh in the ring moment when she says, you know, take this ring. Anyway... So I was not too ashamed to (laughs) give my opinion, obviously, as delicately as I guess I was capable of at that time. But no, I felt very judgmental about all of them. I mean, I'm exaggerating. They're all great actors, and I'm sure I did learn something from them by observing them, obviously. Their subtlety and their innate charm and their innate abilities and all their years, you know, of acting, I I did learn. I can't say that specifically, you know, I watched Gregory Hines and I learned how to blah, blah, blah. It wasn't like that. I think on an unconscious level, I picked up some wonderful things from all of those truly talented people. The main thing, I guess, is that they, you know, really connected. And sometimes you're on stage and you're with somebody and you're thinking, I can't believe you're choosing not to connect. I'm right here. Please connect with me. We're two human beings. We're playing these characters and we are these characters, but there's still a soul connection that can be happening right now. That is what the audience would connect with. You know, that's what I, that's what I yearn for sometimes when I'm on stage here. And they, all of those great stars, they certainly did know how to really connect with each other. So when was it that you made the transition to California, kind of come back to California, and did you know you were going to go to Los Angeles? No, what happened was um, uh, I, I came to visit a friend who was pregnant, and I just kept extending my stay. I met, I met an agent at a party, and he said, well, I'll send you out while you're here if you want. And I was like, well, sure. And he sent me out on a TV show, and I booked it. It was Get a Life, starring Chris Elliott. This is 1990. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. I thought, oh, my God, this is so easy. <laughs> I should be here. So I went back to New York, and I packed up, and I, and I moved uh, to L.A. That's what got me here, really. And I had a crush on an actor that I'd met here. And sometimes you don't realize how much those things are working on your unconscious. But it was like, I need to move to L.A. Needless to say, nothing happened with that actor. Of course, it wasn't easy at all. I booked that job. It was a fluke. Uh, but but it got me here, which I'm really grateful for. And, you know, got to work here, took class with John Lenn, who was an amazing, deceased now, he was an amazing teacher. Anybody who studied with him will tell you the same thing. 
And that was the beginning of my real, uh, becoming a real actor. The emphasis was on, um, it was actor's studio work and internal work, doing effective memory work and all that stuff that I had never really concentrated on. I'd always been facile from the standpoint of character. I did a lot of comedy improv in New York. I I was with the First Amendment Comedy Improv Theater. So I was always facile with creating a character, but sometimes the internal deep stuff was hard for me to access. And John Lenn helped teach me how to, to do that, to be unafraid of experiencing real feeling while portraying somebody else. So what kind of work were you doing in Los Angeles as you were auditioning for commercials or TV and film? And I know at some point you started to do real estate work, right? Did that? When did that come into the picture? Right. So I arrived in 1990 and, um, well, I got a job at Breakdown Services, reading scripts and, and writing the breakdowns. That was a great job and very informative. I learned so much about casting and about scripts and story and all those things. So that was very helpful to have that job, even though it was a real interference in my desire to spend every moment pursuing acting work. But, you know, you had to live. So I worked down and I got some plays. I did some plays here and there. And then I quit Breakdown and I was able to collect unemployment. I had never done that before. And I connected with an employment for like, oh, quite a long time, almost a year, I think, which allowed me to experience really just putting all my efforts into becoming the best actor I could. And then I met my future husband. Well, I knew my future husband, but he he became my fiance. For a couple of years, my life was about that and doing plays. And we married. So the real estate is coming up, but it came after a few other things. What happened was... When Matthew came into my life, he was very support. I was in the middle of, uh, had written my solo play, Non-Vital Organs. I was in the middle of figuring out how to finish it and how to get it produced. Um, I had spent a number of years writing this solo play, the purpose of which, because here, I, here I'm late 30s, right? And like, is this ever going to happen? I'm doing a play here and there, but it's not like I'm really working on any professional level. I was doing 99-seat planned plays, you know? and working at Breakdown Services. So uh, I wrote this play with the help of a friend, and the purpose of the play was to have an opportunity to show everything that I could do. So I wrote characters, a wide variety of characters, and there was emotion involved, you know, um, crises, and it's a narrative. It's just a, it's a multiple-character comedic narrative with a poignant side, And uh, when Matthew came into my life, he helped me to get it produced, the first production, which was at the Hudson Theater on Santa Monica Boulevard. And it was a tiny little hole in the wall, but I did the show and I got some recognition. I got written up in the LA Weekly about it and I won the Los Angeles Drama Critics Circle, gave me an award, the Ray Strickland Solo Play Award with a $5,000 prize attached. So that was, for the first time, really, the professional recognition that I had always yearned for, and some recognition by the L.A. theater community, which is such a strong community, but it is vast, and I had wanted to penetrate that vastness 
And I did. I did become a known factor then. And two years later, we produced it. So then I thought things are going to happen for me now, but not much happened. Two years later, uh, we were asked to do it at the Odyssey. Christina Burke asked us to come to the Odyssey and do it. And she produced it. And that was a bigger theater and, you know, improved the play. And uh, I won the Ovation Award for that. At the time, they had a solo performance award. And I won the Ovation Award for that. And that was an amazing confirmation for me. True confirmation. I was like, wow. And then I did not get any employment in the theater world as a result of it. So that's when, in 2004, I decided to uh, become a realtor. And I did. I sold houses for seven years. And because I'm such an intense person, that that um, profession sucked me in. And it was the boom. You could just stick a two-by-four in the front yard with four sale sign on it, and you'd have people throwing money at the sellers. So it was a good time to be a real estate agent, and I made some good money for several years. It was hard to act as well. Yeah, I was going to say, like, did you kind of did you take some time? Did you take some planned time away from acting, or you were just going to focus on real estate? And and or or did you know you wanted to come back to acting, or you hadn't really ever left? I hadn't ever really left. I I hadn't intended to get sucked into that world, but I did because I'm so because because it, it requires a lot of attention when you have clients, you have to attend to them. You're dealing with their money. I mean, it's so I I just got sucked into it. Um, so the time to devote to my career wasn't as available, but um, I'm sorry. sorry. This is all really intense for me because I do sort of feel like my, I'm so scared I'm going to cry. It, it means a lot that uh, you're sharing what you are and, and I, I'm really grateful for that. So thank, thank you very much for being so open about what your journey has been. I'm such a freaking emotional person. It's this is the curse and the blessing is to be this sensitive, you know. Yeah. Um, it is the source of the good stuff that we produce, but it does make living day to day sometimes <laughs> a bit challenging. Well, well, can I ask? Yeah. You know, as an emotional person, as as you kind of need to be for your career, how do you balance? That um, you know the the rejection and and the toughness that is uh, inherent in being an actor uh, with that emotional um, accessibility, the emotional sensitivity that's required. Um, I balance it by, to use a hackneyed phrase, practicing gratitude. I have to just stop and see how privileged I am to be doing this. Through the hard times, through the good times, it doesn't matter how many people have the opportunity, the privilege of doing what they dreamt of doing. It's so rare and so precious. So I balance it with that. I balance it with love of friends and talking with my fellow actors and we share our, you know, our struggles. Uh, it's not easy for anybody even those with great success, it's, it's very challenging. We don't live a life that is anything but fully awake. We live a life that is very alive, mm. very present. It's, it's fraught with, with opportunities to be um, 
to experience feeling, lots of feelings. Yeah. Feelings, you know, auditions, even getting cast. There's disappointment, opportunity for disappointment every day. And so you balance that with remembering. That's the cost of what I get to do, which is my dream. I live my dream. It's so wonderful. I cherish that, especially since it was so long time coming. Yeah. After you were, you know, focused on the real estate, do you feel like something shifted for you mentally when you, you know, quote unquote, kind of resumed your career? Yeah. I learned a lot from being a realtor. I learned a lot from being in the professional world, you know, a grown up in the professional world handling real people's money. So I grew up from that standpoint in a way that I never had before. And the fact that I was able to function in that world, that real business world, was sort of a marvel to me. Uh, you know, I take everything so seriously. I'm just deeply touched by everything. So, so that I was able to function was, was really a great uh, learning for me. And what I came away with, <laughs> I, mean, I started a career goals group, uh, and members of the NTS company are eligible to to come. And at the in the career goals group, I always talk about our job as an actor, and it is twofold. Our job is product development and marketing. It's fifty percent product development and it's fifty percent marketing. And um, you know, product development being developing myself as an actor, and marketing obviously being doing all those things that we need to do to be professionals. Uh, you know, make sure everything's up to date on your sites. You know, does IMDb have your latest clip? You know, that kind of thing. New headshots. Right. It's informing everyone of of the product and, and you know, what is, uh, you know, all the great features and benefits, that kind of stuff. Right. So I learned that from, from, that's what I learned from becoming a realtor. I learned that I, as an actor, I'm also a business person. I've got a business. The business is Gigi Birmingham. And how am I going to, how am I going to market the business? It's like what Winston Churchill said. Was it he? Who was it who said, uh, there are so many people who have great talent. Men, I think you said, are a dime a dozen, but those who make something of themselves, that's a rare thing. I'm yeah. misquoting, and I don't even know if I'm quoting <laughs> the right person. But. The, the sentiment is, um, is still true, right. There's a lot of great ideas, but uh, you know, it's few who actually do something with them. Um, so, all right, I want to jump ahead to at least one of the roles you, you've done, and that's uh, Maria Callas in Masterclass. And, you know, that, at least from my perspective, that does seem to combine a lot of your strengths um, as an actress. And you know, I'm curious, you know, not only playing a, a real person, but, you know, what were what were some of your approaches to that character or how, you know, how did you how did you find her? And, you know, was she was she elusive or did you really kind of connect with her immediately? Well, I'm wondering if I want to answer directly that question, or if I want to talk first about my general process. Sure, that's fine. Yeah, that'd be great. General, when I approach a character, it's different, of course, when you're playing a real person. But approaching a character, I gather all the information that I can from what the playwright has written. And I go further. I don't recommend this for everybody, but I read um, reviews, I try and find articles about people talking about the play and what worked and what didn't and the character. And nowadays, it's so different than it used to be because now you just, you're on the internet, you have everything at your fingertips. 
For I, You know what it is? Here's how I, be, I begin to prepare for a character first with the audition. The audition goes a good long way to starting the preparation for the character. So when I begin, when I am cast, I've already done um, a fair amount of, of preparation. Like I said, that, that's what I was trying to say. Why do I go on and look at the reviews and so on? It's because when I'm auditioning, I'm in a hurry for information. And so I gather information any old way I can to see what works with this character. I work from the outside in, sort of, but I also work from the inside out. I can't really subscribe to a particular school of, of thought on that. But for me, I have to know, have a sense of the physique of the character. Um, you know, what drives them? Does pride drive them? Are they driven by fear? Many people are. Uh, what drives them? What is the, you know, the basic emotion of their life? And, and then I base a, a physical choice on that. And simultaneously, you know, I think about what they sound like and how they move. I, I'm, st- I'm starting with the audition because, like I say, for me, audition preparation is intense. And so I, I begin the memorization process. It used to be, I remember a time when I was young and it would be like the, the, the thought going, going that I'd been told and that I believed was don't memorize until you've really, until you understand what you are saying and you know how you want to say it. And now at my age, I absolutely, the first thing I begin doing sometimes if like, if I get, if I get an audition, I instantly print the sides all else can wait. I print the sides and I carry them with me wherever I go. If I'm in the car, uh, I'll work on them. Or I'll, uh, as, soon as, as soon as I've worked them through so I have a sense of how to say the lines, I record them on the rehearsal app. You know the rehearsal mm-hmm. app? Yes, system? yeah. Invaluable to me. I use that app and then I carry it with me and I just I try to get off book as, as uh, much as possible before the audition. So now memorization being not an issue but a a task that requires time. That's the number one thing I do. And then the other research can come afterwards now. It doesn't disturb me that I know the words before I even know what I'm doing. But that's just a, that's an older actor dealy. Young actors won't, won't need that. Um, so besides getting a sense of their, their physique and what their emotional you know thrust is, then I, I want to know the most important thing, of course, for any preparation is knowing what they want. And it's all—it's almost always right there in the in the text. It would be highly unusual for it not to be there for you if you look for it. And you try on different things, you try on different wants until you find the one that really feels authentic. So all this I do for the audition, and then once I've gotten the role, I pick up where I left off. Now you do want to kind of drop some of the information you might have gathered, like I might have watched. I'm I'm just being honest with you. I might have watched another actress do the scene on YouTube to see what worked or what didn't work. And for my audition, I may steal what works and I will, you know, beware what didn't work. So for the audition, I'm just sort of like a a whore who will just take anything. And then when when it's my own, then, of course, things become different. But I do a ton of preparation by myself. I don't need to be in the room with other people or at rehearsal or anything. I do just as much preparation as I can by myself. So I come in fully loaded. You can always drop stuff, but to be behind the eight ball and not have all the stuff that you need, 
that's much worse. Nowadays, with rehearsals being in the professional shows that I do, often quite short, three weeks, four weeks, I try to come as close to off book as I can and as close to just ready. It's like, you know, living in L.A., what's been helpful is you work in television and film and you show up uh, to to meet your your co-stars on set and to do the scene for the first time and only time, you know, on the same day. Um, when you work at the level I do, which is I'm not usually a lead. So you show up, you better be off book by the time you show up to the set for the first time, perhaps meet the director for the first time and your other actors for the first time, and you'll get a rehearsal and then you're going to shoot it. So that kind of preparation that you learn to do television and film uh, really has helped me as a, as a theater actor because now I prepare as much as I can in that way for a theater job. And like I say, when you have three weeks to do a play, it's good to show up that prepared because then the time spent in rehearsal can actually be more than just about the mechanical stuff. You can actually try and connect with the other actors. So uh, that gives you a general idea of of how I prepare for a play. And now, if you like, (laughs) I can talk to you about Maria Callas. Yeah, that'll be great. Okay. So when you're playing somebody who was real... It's wonderful and terrible. It's wonderful because you have somebody famous like Maria Callas, and there are tons of YouTubes and interviews with her and all kinds of stuff. You have just such a ream of of material that doesn't just suggest how the character should be played. It tells you this is how the character was played. This was a real person, and this is how she spoke, how she moved. You can see the fear in her eyes or the... Um, arrogance or whatever you see, you see it. You, I mean, it's right there. How do you get that inside of you is the question when it's a person that you're impersonating. Now, for Maria Callas, she was very well-known and very famous, and to some people, she would be known to to an inch of her toenails. But most people now don't know her like they did 50 years ago. And so... It was it was less of a less of a problem to impersonate her, which of course I didn't do, but to uh, to portray her than it was a problem to portray Judy Garland, which I did a couple years later. So, but for Maria Callas, there was a little bit more room for um, creative uh, license. Like I say, the information was there for me and books, and and biographies, and YouTube. So uh, I've always enjoyed imitation. So you, so I imitated, you know, I would imitate her. Of course, I record her, and then I would just talk along with her and try and get my timbre to be like hers and my pronunciation to be like hers and the tone and inflections and everything. I would just try to be like her and talk along with her. I had a few speeches of hers that I would just talk along with. And then, then you go, then I would go to my dialogue and try to, you know, I I would hear her voice in my ear and I would hear my own voice in my ear and I would be able to hear my voice when it sounded like her voice. And so then I would try to apply that to the dialogue of the play. So for me, it was very important first to get a sense of how I would speak and move as her and the internal stuff came later with that particular role. But, you know, it's, it, it always comes down to the, the, the one thing, which is what does the person want? What does the character want? And how are they going to go about 
getting it, what action they're going to take to get what they want. What do they hide? What do they show? It's the same for every character. Can I go off on a little tangent right now? Of course, yes. So the tangent would be, I'm very frustrated currently with much of the theater that I see because it seems to me that many actors have forgotten to ask themselves the most basic question, which is in this moment, what do I want? What do I need? What do I have to have? And as much as I love playing with the external aspects of a character, like I say, you know, creating a framework, a physical framework for myself to, to then um, to move and to, to speak at the same time without the, the knowing of what I want, None, who cares about any of it? And I've seen a number of shows in recent times where the actors are not asking themselves, what must I have right now? What must I get? And I'm totally stunned by this and stunned by directors allowing that to be the case as well. At the same time, I've seen some amazing um, theater. So, uh, but, but it just makes me sad because that's our most important job. You, you'll forgive an actor if they don't look right or sound right or, or move you know, authentically. Anything inauthentic, you can forgive it if, if the need is authentic. Because that's all you really hook into as an audience member, I think. Well, talking about the characters you know, that, are, that are out there to play, I, I read once that you said... You are you get really excited by characters that are off in some way. Maybe they're over sexualized or underdeveloped emotionally or or intellectually or or somehow you know different. And and I'm curious why why is that? Why do you think you're excited by those types of characters? Hmm. Did I really say that? <laughs> Could be true. Yes. Well, because it's easier. Any extreme for me is easier to hook into. Uh, because the, because the need I think in a person in such a person is strongest. A subtle characterization is tougher for me. I don't think a lot of people would argue with that, but it's possible, and I have done it. I do do it. But you know, I guess what I meant, I think, when I said that was misfits, is what I meant. And I think it's because I was a misfit. I know what it is. I still feel like a misfit. I know what it is. I know what it is to feel outside feel uh, like you're always fighting just to to appear okay, to appear acceptable. How can I make myself acceptable to the world, to other people, without being judged? And so I think that's why I relate to people with, um, you know, who struggle, who have struggled. Gigi, do you have time for a few kind of like more rapid fire questions? Yes. Okay, your your answers don't have to be uh, short and rapid fire, but uh, these are just uh, some some shorter ideas. Um, did you ever really go after a role, um, that, something that you saw and you were like, I I'm going to do everything I can to get this? Um, about a million times, <laughs> a lot. Well, not a million times, but yeah, every time I get an audition, I think uh, just about. I mean. I'm exaggerating, as usual. Let me think. I mean, I did very recently, so I just, it's very fresh. It was just literally a few months ago that there was a role that I knew not everybody could do this, 
I knew that I had certain qualities that not all the actors have that made me a good candidate. I looked absolutely right. I was the right age. I had the right everything for this role. And I um, had always wanted to play it. And I prepared, uh, you know, it was a ton of material and I was totally confident with it and off book and everything. And the director called me back and you know, so sometimes you're in the room and you can just tell there's electricity and they're just totally excited by you. And I felt that. And then I didn't get cast and I, I got a personal email from the director telling me how sad he was that he wasn't going to have a chance to work with me on this. I, I understood and I totally understood their casting choice. It made total sense to me. I got it. But that it was heartbreaking. It was even now, even now, it was totally heartbreaking because that was the one chance I was probably going to ever have to do that role. Hmm. And and I was at the peak of my game. And I gave the audition I would have hoped I would give. And they loved me. And they couldn't cast me. So that was uh, that was a heartbreak. Hmm. But that's not the first time that's happened. I've often gone for it. I went for it with Maria Callas. I mean, I I've often gone for it, and it does pay off. It, you know, I can't encourage people enough to, to go for it. Give you, give, don't be shy to give all you have, all you have, because several reasons. One, play the role. You have a moment where you get to do this. Chew on it. Enjoy it. Give it all you have. That's one reason. And secondly, um, professionally, you will be remembered by the casting people, by the director, by the producers. You will be remembered, even if they don't cast you, as somebody who came in and gave it your all. And you know how important that is in this world with, with the state of the theater now and these short rehearsal periods? They need somebody who comes in and is like ready to rock, not somebody who's like, all right, you're lucky to have me here. We all need to have humility and openness with each other to, so we can have the smallest, tiny chance of making something that you can actually call art because it doesn't happen very often. And the least we can do as an actor is to do all that we can to bring our art to this thing that might be lucky enough to be called art. Very cool. Um, you know, not long ago, I saw that you, well, I know you had directed the production of You Can't Take It With You for Antias, but then I saw not long ago, you um, also directed a production of that at the uh, University of Southern California. Uh, which is mm -hmm. also my alma mater. Oh, <laughs> yeah! I saw that and I was like, ah, uh -uh. I was like, I I'm only about 15 years too late to have worked with Gigi as a as a college student. Um, but what I'm curious about is, you know, here you are working with you know uh, smart you know theater majors, other acting students, and what what advice might you have for people you know of that age who are you know who have tried to uh, educate themselves in terms of the craft and are about to enter this quote-unquote real world, what uh, might you share with them? I would say whatever relationships you've created, foster them. Do not drop them. It's so easy to drop them. You go out in the big world and you haven't seen somebody for three months. Make an effort to stay in touch with anyone I don't mean to sound mercenary, but I'm going to just say the words with anyone who might help you to connect you with work. And if people are like me, which they often are, they want to help you. They, they, they know you're talented. They know what you have to bring. 
they may know somebody who's looking for someone like you, but they're very busy. So they're not going to be like sitting there going, oh, I should call Cindy and find out if she's interested in being introduced to so-and-so. No, everybody's so busy. That's why you have to make the effort to remain in contact with people. Most of the time, they'll be very glad to hear from you, and you will contact them just at the right moment when they can put you together with somebody else. So that's the first thing. Maintain your contacts. Foster your contacts. Your fellow students, you don't know which one is going to go and become an artistic director at a theater company. Maintain your relationships sincerely. If you don't like somebody, forget it. Drop it. But I'm talking about if you have a sincere a uh, good feeling for somebody and you've created a relationship, maintain that relationship. The second thing I would say is if you didn't get any on-camera classes, get some on-camera classes immediately. Hopefully you did at USC. And I mean, my hope for them would they be they'd come out with an agent. If you didn't go about it now, don't wait, get going, find somebody to represent you, get going now because youth is perhaps the greatest commodity that leads to work. So as a young person, make hay while the sun shines, and then later on you can relax a little bit. Right now is the moment to really jump in. Don't say to yourself, I'm not ready, this, that. I mean, unless you've been told you're not ready and you need to take classes of a certain kind. Okay, listen to that, take the classes, and then jump in. You've got to really be willing to um, to be single-minded. Of course, you probably probably have to work. You'll probably have to get some loathsome job or perhaps some fun job. Don't let that take over your life. Just have it be the job that gives you the money, that allows you to live, that allows you to pursue what you want to do. And always, always continue your product development. Continue reading dramatic literature, read plays, attend a class. Of course, you should be in a class when you graduate. Go and get a professional class. Meet other actors. Find out what's going on in the world. That's a great way also to know what's happening. You know, you can help each other. That's, that's, that's my, my main advice, I suppose. And also, if you're in L.A. Just, uh, or New York, don't, for God's sakes, say to yourself, I only want to do theater. I can't imagine anybody saying that now, but perhaps somebody would. Don't say that. You've got to try and get film and television work. How do you think you're going to live? It's, it's impossible to live by just doing theater. You must do television and film. And commercials. Commercials are fantastic. Commercials are the number one way that actors earn their living. That's just a statistic. So be happy to do commercials, television and film. I mean, I'm sure you will be. <laughs> and getting a commercial agent is easier than getting a theatrical agent. So my first advice would be if you don't have an agent when you come out, submit yourself to a bunch of commercial agencies, get a commercial agent, start going out commercially. Those auditions are like theatrical auditions. You still have to show up. You have to do something in front of a camera. It's, it's stressful. It's tense making. Have that, that stressful tense making experience can, you know, the more you do it, the less, the less it is so that you want to do it as much as you can because the more you're in front of the camera, the more you do an audition, if you have, you know, 10 auditions in a week, believe me, by the fourth audition, you're just not that nervous anymore. If you only do one audition per month, each audition has so much intensity on it. So try and get out there and audition as much as possible. Even audition for, for stuff, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say this, but for stuff you may not want. 
Um, if there's some student films or something that don't really appeal to you, but it's an opportunity for you to prepare some material, get in front of people, get in front of the camera, say hello, say goodbye. You know, um, it's building your muscles. It's building your muscles as a professional actor. Because our job as a professional actor, for many of us, is most of the time, basically, auditioning. We're being interviewed. If you told other people in the real world, you know, that your job is mostly getting job interviews, you know, they'd be like, oh, my God, how do you stand it? That must be terrifying. Yes, it is terrifying. And yes, we get used to it because that's the only choice we have. <laughs> it comes fun. It can be, you know, an opportunity, like I say, to, to perform. What would you tell your 25-year-old self? I would tell my 25-year-old self, get into a 12-step program for food addiction, which I eventually did, but not till I was... 38. So I would tell her to do it right away and solve that, that overweight problem and that food, that food problem. I would tell her, keep the faith. You're not deluded. For many years, I did think I was deluded. I'd been told over and over again, I was talented, but there was no proof of it. I wasn't employed or, you know, get confirmation that you're not deluded. Have people told you you're talented. Um, you're on the right path. Just don't be in a hurry. It's going to come when it comes. Life is beautiful. And you are privileged, privileged to be doing what you always wanted to do. Gigi, you mentioned that you're able to live your dream. And mm -hmm. I'm curious, what are some of your dreams that are yet realized? What, what do you still hope to, to do? Well, I have my bucket list of roles. So that's, that's one thing. It's not a long list. Um, and um, so, you know, but I look forward to those opportunities. I, um, what do I yet look forward to do? Just anything that comes along that can allow me to participate in making something beautiful or inspiring or entertaining because what we do is so important to this, to this world, especially now. So anything that I can participate in where I can bring my, uh, my gifts and share them in a way that will brighten the world somehow. That's all. That's all I hope for now for the pleasure of, I, I look, you know, I, I want to become more relaxed as a coworker. And um, I'd like to become one of those actors who tells anecdotes. I've never been that. I'm always on to the next thing. But, but, I, but I love being in the company of actors who say, oh, my God, I'll never forget 1994. I was working on such and such, and I ran into so-and-so. You know, that's, that's fun. So I just, I just look forward to whatever opportunities come down the pike. I may have, I may have peaked. I don't know. Or, or the best may be yet to come professionally. Either way, it's okay. I do know that the older we become as actors, if we keep doing it, we just do become better and better, usually, up to a point. So I, I look forward to just continuing to hone my craft and continuing to have opportunities to do things that I've never done before. So that's all.
Yeah. Well, I do appreciate all of the anecdotes you were able to share today. So you do have, you do have uh, plenty. And, um, I really appreciate your openness, your honesty, your, your vulnerability. And so I I really want to honor you and thank you for that. And I'm just thrilled that, uh, all those years ago, uh, I saw you in that production of Tartuffe. Uh, at the Odyssey Theater and, and, you know, even noted at the time, like, that actress is great. She is funny and she's great with the language and, and just a real presence on stage. And, uh, you know, now, nowadays I get to see someone I know on that show, Adam Ruins Everything, um, which is one of my favorite shows. I think it's just hilarious. And I'm so thrilled that I know someone who's working on it because it's just, uh, it's, I, I see it. I'm like, this should be required viewing for everybody. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's just so, it, it, they've, they've found a great way of, of, um, you know, really educating people in a, in a very fun, I think, way. So I imagine it's as fun to work uh, on that as, as it looks. It really is. Those people, Big Breakfast and, and College Humor, and uh, are just amazing. It's an amazing set to work on. Very, very positive energy. Well, uh, Gigi, thank you so, so much for your time. It really, really such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Nathan. Take care. <laughs> It's Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss anything. And if you can take a minute to rate and review this in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts, that will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all comments and thank you very much for doing that. Be sure to visit workingactorsjourney.com slash podcast for the show notes and any links from today's episode. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. Feel free to connect and let us know what did you enjoy from the show. Don't forget to visit workingactorsjourney.com slash audible for your free audiobook and 30-day trial from Audible. Thank you again to today's guest. I really appreciate and value all the people that contribute their time to making this show possible. I'm Nathan Agan, and thanks for listening.